have you started your Sober Curious Reset yet? This is the title of my new book, which is a workbook and self-study program to guide you through 100 days alcohol-free. The book is the perfect companion for anybody doing dry January or taking any intentional break from booze, and it contains all the insights gained from conversations I've had with people just like you about what it means to be sober curious, as well as everything I've learned about how to apply this to your life. Each day of content starts with a different sober curious question for you to consider, which might be anything from what am I going to drink tonight to what is it I don't want to feel right now, along with a specific teaching on this and an interactive exercise to help you integrate it. Anybody can engage with the Sober Curious Reset, regardless of where you're at on your sober or sober curious path, and you can find it wherever you buy your books. You can also join the Sober Curious Facebook group, where we'll be diving in together starting January 1st, 2021. I hope to see you there. And welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about living a more conscious, connected and present life. I'm your host, as always, Ruby Warrington, and my guest this week is Marcos Salazar, whose organization For All Drinks is the official partner of the Dry January Initiative in the United States. Marcos is doing incredible work to promote living alcohol-free, first and foremost by creating a platform that brings together all of the amazing booze-free beverage options in one place. But he's also deeply committed to helping enact social change, and both his training in psychology and his background in the nonprofit space mean he has tons of insights into the wider impact of people across the board beginning to question our drinking as we become more intentional with our choices and our work in the world. He also has some fascinating things to say about how drinking affects our mental and emotional well-being, what he describes, and I love this term, as our psychological immune system, as well as how to talk to loved ones about their drinking. This is Marcos Salazar. Marcos, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Well, yeah, it's kind of like we've been tag teaming or going back and forth for, I feel like, a couple of years now, probably. And um, when I was thinking about who I wanted to feature in this season, knowing that it would be kind of going through dry January for this year, 2021, um, your name was just kind of front and center, actually, because you are or you and your organization are the official kind of US partners for the dry January movement, which is pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, fortunately, uh, the organization for all drinks that I run, we partnered with Alcohol Change UK, the creators of dry January, and they do some really, really amazing work. uh, And, but the campaign tends to be online and it tends to be a little bit more UK focused. And we just really wanted to have an opportunity to create something for the United States. Yeah. It's always been very interesting to me, like as a kind of trend or style journalist in the UK, we would always be looking to New York for like the starting place for every trend, basically anything that was happening in New York, we knew it would be big in the UK a year later, but it's interesting, isn't it? With dry January, I don't know what year did it actually start in the UK? Do you know? Do you have I believe it was 2013 and it started as a different organization that currently is, and it continued to grow and grow and grow and eventually turned into this global phenomenon. 
Yeah. And it feels like it really is. I mean, only in the past couple of years that it's been kind of a big deal in the US. And it was interesting when I first I did my my first dry January was in 2014. But it seemed like no one knew what the hell I was doing. I also challenged myself that month to do the Bikram challenge, like the 30 day kind of hot yoga challenge, because I knew that that would be an additional kind of impetus for me to not drink during that month. So I did the combo of like dry January and hot yoga every day. It was quite intense, but it was definitely a turning point for me. Um, I'd love to kind of like back it up a bit and just talk to you and hear hear a bit about the inception of For All Drinks. I remember when you first told me about this organization that you were setting up, I was curious about the title, actually, and we haven't ever really discussed this, but I'm quite obsessed with titles and the the names that that organizations and ideas have because they are how we kind of receive, they speak very much to how we receive them in the world. And when I first heard the title For All Drinks, I thought, well, if it was all drinks, it would be alcoholic drinks too, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I'd love if you could share a bit about, you know, the inception of the organization and that title, For All Drinks specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll take even a little bit of a step back to give you some context on how it actually emerged. And it'll actually tie into sober curiosity and the inspiration that I got from reading your book and a little bit of a conversation that we've had, which is this concept of, we have alcoholism and then workaholism. Uh, mm. And that really sprung out of that. So a little bit of my background. So I graduated with a degree in psychology and have a, a master's in organizational management. After I graduated uh, college, I essentially led a double life. I worked in the nonprofit sector. I worked at the American Psychological Association, then moved to work on to, at Girl Scouts, where I was a te- I was a leadership researcher and tech strategist, and fortunately had as many access to as many Thin Mints and Samoas as I could ever want. And then worked in another awesome organization called the White House Project to help more women run for office. Um, it's now this amazing organization called Vote Run Lead that helps one of the main political training programs for women. So by day, I was working in the nonprofit sector, and by night, I was just building lots of different things. I didn't know what the term was, but it was essentially being a creative or an entrepreneur and launched a couple of clothing companies, wrote some books, and then came together and created this organization called Be Social Change, which was this integration of this entrepreneurial side and social impact side. And I recognized in about 2012 that there wasn't really a place in New York where I could go for access to resources or events or a community for people that wanted to make the better make the world a better place through their work or through their lifestyle. So launched a launched a nonprofit that eventually became a for-profit. Um, and we're we essentially were an event-based company. We hosted about five to seven events every month. We would host about eight to ten professional development workshops and built this amazing community in New York City. But the life of an entrepreneur is constantly working, working, working. And I love it. I'm one of those type of people that gets energy from actually working. But around two, about a year and a half ago, I was just burnt out. I mean, the reality is I was burnt out for much longer than that. But I started recognizing and making a connection between drinking and working. Um, I got into a habit um, over a period of about a couple of years where I was working during the day. And then in order to take a break or to work a little bit more, there was this amazing local bar in my area in Brooklyn and Fort Greene that had this outside table that had this beautiful sunset. And I loved working for a couple hours after that and got into this really bad habit of having some drinks while also working. And 
also made this connection or seeming connection that it was also linked and would help my creativity. Uh, and I would come up with new ideas and I would come up with all these different things. It was probably the sunset more than the alcohol. Um, but over a period of time made that connection. And without even knowing it, I started just craving alcohol uh, much, much, much more. And just recognized that it just wasn't a healthy element of my life. I, I fortunately had my fiance, then girlfriend at the time, we had some discussions about that because I simply wasn't as present as I wanted to be with her. And there'd be times where I'd come home tipsy and I'd see her and I just wasn't, um, yeah, simply as present with her. And she called me out on it and um, really helped me see that there wasn't a healthy connection that I had made there. So I decided to stop drinking um, for a period of time, but I'm the type of person that when I go to a party, I raid the fridge and cabinets because I love making drinks for people and I'll make these crazy concoctions and realized that I, I, I went out and I started trying to think, uh, find other non-alcoholic options that were available and found that the non-alcoholic beverage space was really fragmented, that there weren't a lot of places to find really delicious non-alcoholic beverages. And that really that's the, that's the impetus of four all drinks. And I think for me, I really had to explore and figure out where did I really want to focus on? Because there was this beginning journey, this beginning sober curious journey that I was on relating to figuring out my own relationship with alcohol. So there was that first element. And then there was this emerging non-alcoholic beverage space that was uh, so many amazing brands coming out with non-alcoholic beverages that were just as good, if not better than their alcoholic counterparts. And early on really had to recognize that if I straddled both, it wasn't going to, you, I could do it, but I really, really needed to focus. And that's really where For All Drinks came about is that we focus on helping people discover delicious non-alcoholic beverages for leading a fun, healthy, and inclusive lifestyle. And I chose those three words very specifically. Um, we want people to have fun uh, when they're going out and not and recognize that you don't necessarily have to have alcohol to have fun. Uh, we want people to drink smarter and drink healthier. And there's a lot of non-alcoholic beverages that are uh, available to be able to do that. And then there's this inclusivity piece. And that's a little bit of this social impact piece that I think about when it comes to four all drinks is that there's so many people that feel not included or feel like second-class citizens because they don't have a tasty non-alcoholic beverage at many different occasions that they're engaging with, whether it's a restaurant or a bar, a wedding, it could be a just personal, regular personal gathering. And at those places, you're usually confined to sugary drinks or water. And I really wanted to change that element of society of really recognizing that there's these delicious non-alcoholic options available. And can we integrate them into all our uh, social experiences? I really love that piece. That was one of, there's so much that I kind of want to dig into through what you just laid out, but um, let's speak on that inclusivity piece. I had a question about that further down, but when I was looking at your website earlier, I noticed that that was one of your three words. And of course, you I, I, I create these sorts of brands and, and platforms all the time, and I know how carefully you have to choose your wording. So I was really curious about that word inclus inclusivity and um, or inclusive rather. And I think it's very interesting what you just brought up. It can seem like such a petty thing. You know, it's like, 
oh, there aren't the drinks options for me. Like, <laughs> you know, that's how, how awful is that? But I think on a, if we kind of zoom out and just think about how, what a light that shines on how ready we are to other or exclude people who don't kind of like go along with the dominant group think or who don't have the same needs as the dominant group. It's so easy for us to overlook the needs of, of others ultimately. And I think that this is just a way that we can see that happening on a really sort of innocuous way. But then we can look at that and say, well, actually, let's look at all the other ways that that happens in society as well. Like how many people are kind of, quote unquote, left out because they have different needs or their needs maybe require a bit more, a bit more care, a bit more thinking about, a bit more integration, you know, yeah, or a bit absolutely. more investment, time, energy, money, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that's a really I love the way you kind of brought that that social change piece in to the front yeah. and center of For All Drinks as well. Yeah, and I, I think there's definitely people not feeling included, but think about that emotional impact that that person has, that feeling of being the other or not included, or simply not not feeling taken care of, or more importantly, not feeling psychologically seen. Mm -hmm. um, you're reminding me of a story of a of a, one of the founders of a, a non-alcoholic beverage that I just had a podcast interview with, and him and his wife uh, created this brand for these exact reasons that we're talking about. But while they were creating this brand, they were at a, at a uh, dinner and the host was serving all these kind of fancy drinks and making all these fancy drinks for people. And there were about four or five, they mentioned that hadn't, that weren't drinking, they were just drinking water. And at the end of the night, they realized that the host was continually asking people would you like me to make you another drink? Did you want me to make you this or this or this? And had actually never asked the guests who were drinking water if they wanted more water. Mm. So there's all these elements of the social situations where the narrative and story of alcohol and the complexity of all the different types of ingredients allow for a host to be a host while also like engage the people that they're hosting. I think what's different now is there's all these emerging non-alcoholic beverage bands and beer and spirits and wine that have that level of sophistication and complexity that allows people that are hosting as well as that are consuming interesting drinks and being able to be part of those uh, those moments and those experiences. Mm, I mean, that feeling of being left out or being excluded, again, it can, can kind of sort of seem sort of quite innocuous and not that impactful, but actually from a psychological perspective, speaking to your kind of like background in psychology, like what's actually happening? Because I know that one of the biggest fears that people have when they consider quitting or even taking a step out of the drinking culture for a period of time. One of the biggest fears is like, I'm no longer going to be included. Why is that such a kind of almost primal fear for people? You nailed it. And I was just going to go back in there. You remind me uh, to the to the primal aspect of it. You remind me of a quote from Seth Godin. And I don't know the exact quote, but he talks about the worst feeling that, that anybody could have is the feeling of not belonging. And it's so core to our nature. And the reality is feeling lonely or left out. It's adaptive. Because when you uh, thinking about primitive times where you don't feel in, you feel excluded from a group, it might be because you did something mm. uh, that was bad to the group or to the tribe. And that negative feeling is going to ha help you alter your behavior. When it comes to these kind of contexts or situations, that that negative feeling is still is still there. So I I don't think of it necessarily as something that is taken lightly because that feeling of loneliness or that feeling of not feeling included, think about high school, think about uh, grade school and those feelings of just 
torture of not feeling included, that's happening on a regular basis by people not having access to delicious non-alcoholic beverages in social situations. Absolutely. And I, I mean, even when you mentioned the word high school, a part of me just cringed because I hate I hate to revisit those times in my memory. Yeah. I felt like such an outsider. And for sure, one of the reasons I started drinking at that age, and it makes me think about how many of us start drinking at that age, was so that I could feel included and I could go to the parties and not be the wallflower on the sidelines who wasn't kind of getting involved with everybody, you know, who wasn't part of the group. So yeah, yeah I do think it's interesting what you said about how that feeling of social exclusion could have been like you did something harmful for the group group but it's not not really that simple is it no, <laughs> it's like it's, it's, this we 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 want to keep everything for ourselves so we're going to exclude you we think you're too too beautiful and too cool so we're going to exclude you like there's all sorts of reasons actually why people find themselves being excluded from social groups for no fault of their own yeah and, and i think the thing we always have to take into account and i always have very interesting discussions with people is that i have a framework of an evolutionary kind of psychology uh, and that's a little bit of my background. I love it. And what I what I and that's not to say that our genes or biology determine things. They influence things, and they influence things. And when you think about DNA, it always unwraps and unravels in a particular context. So there's always this delicate dance of genes as well as the environment. So the and the reason I say that is because you have to think about why certain emotions and certain things evolved. They typically for adaptive reasons, but they evolved in very, very different contexts. And now they're playing out in these in this new world in the 21st century. And that's the same reason why there's consumerism. That's the same reason why um, the alcohol industry ends up having certain types of advertisements to make you, make you either feel bad or that you're gonna feel amazing or good if you drink their product and it's harmful. Um, so, so I, I think we just have to understand those elements of our of our uh, biology and how it plays out in a particular context. Absolutely. And the more we understand what's happening for us on a biological and psychological level, the more we can kind of like almost get a step ahead and caretake ourselves and look out for kind of like, okay, so I know this might be triggering for me. Or I know this is going to be a difficult, challenging situation. I can kind of like look after myself and mentally and emotionally prepare, psychologically prepare for different for different situations, yeah. even if it's like I can psychologically prepare for being sold to by, by the constant advertising images around alcohol, I can choose to to not be get sucked into it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and getting back to what you were saying of why I came up with for all drinks and mm. that, that concept, it, that it was, was actually a con question. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a conversation I was having with my fiance, Jen, and together we really came up with it. I think the reality is I think she kind of drove that conversation, that brainstorming. And Again, it ties into that uh, that inclusion piece is that we want to have delicious non-alcoholic beverages for everyone, for all. And we want people to not only have uh, have support companies to help create them, but also create context where people have access to them. Because it's really an access element as well. And I really think about the non-alcoholic beverage movement similar to the gluten-free and vegan movement. So think about five, 10 years ago when you go to a restaurant or bar and on a menu, those options weren't available. And people who were choosing those lifestyles are making those health choices were excluded. And that's where non-alcoholic drinkers are right now. And we really want to 
create a world. And that's the mission of For All Drinks, where everybody has access to these in every context and every social situation. Mm, and hopefully at every price point. As much, I, yes. And I know this is very much an emerging market and a lot of the brands in the space are startups. And so they're making small batches. And so price points can be quite high. That's something that it's not necessarily something I hear people speaking about. I just noticed it for myself. And going back to that piece about like, who's actually included in this conversation, it really needs to be available for everybody. Is part of your mission going forward to perhaps bring the sober curious conversation and the kind of alcohol free conversation into sort of like lower income offerings as well? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. And the, the price thing is very, very fascinating. Let's kind of take a little bit of a, of a dive into that. Is that the challenge that these non-alcoholic beverage brands are facing is one, educating people on non-alcoholic beverages because for 10 to 15 years, there really was an innovation in this space. So thinking about the craft beer movement and all the, the delicious beers that emerged from that, all the different varieties, but then there was nothing in the non-alcoholic beer space and it was O'Doul's and that was it until recently, now there's craft beer and then now there's craft spirits and craft wine. And, and the word craft is really important because we tend to think about uh, equate value with alcohol content uh, mm. when it comes to alcoholic drinks. And alcohol is actually one of, is the cheapest, if not one of the cheapest parts of drinking. But we, we assume value with that buzz. Mm. But the reality is, is that all these beers and wines and spirits are having to innovate to mimic really delicious tastes, um, similar to their uh, alcohol counterparts. So there's a lot of time and energy and research um, that actually has to go into it. And that's why there's a higher price point. But, I, but part of that mission also is that if we can create the infrastructure and help these non-alcoholic brands grow, the prices are going to come down more and more as more and more enter the market. So I do think, it, and I think that's interesting. I was, I was doing a little research or re refreshing myself on all of the social impact stats when it comes to alcohol. And it does affect low income um, communities in such significant ways. I'm from New Mexico. There is an, um, an indigenous people population, Native American population in New Mexico as well as Hispanic uh, population. And there's alcoholism that runs uh, pretty deep. It's, it's also part of my, um, some in some parts of my family as well. And I've seen kind of firsthand the negative consequences of so much alcohol consumption there. So if we're able to provide and support these companies from being able to provide low cost options to as many people as possible, I can see the positive social impact on that kind of the ripple effects um, over time. Absolutely. And then in tandem with that, the education piece is so important. And, and, I, and I know that how much people spend on having, having to spend on marketing their drinks. So that all kind of gets factored into the cost as well, right? Yeah. So the education piece is really important. And then, you know, if people are struggling with substance abuse issues, we also need to really talk about like the accessibility and availability of mental health services and emotional well-being services and self-care for people of, of low-income communities as well. So that's another really yeah. important kind of piece that all has to happen in tandem, which to me, I think is very much where your work with For All Drinks intersects with your Be Social Change kind of yeah. mission, right? Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that I'm starting to see, so coming from my background with Be Social Change, and we work with a lot of socially conscious businesses, uh, B Corps, uh, if you're not familiar with those, check them out. It's a certification uh, to show that organizations are, companies specifically are abiding by certain social, environmental, and organizational standards. And what's so fascinating about this non-alcoholic beverage space, I've 
pretty much met every single founder in the US and Canadian market and had conversations. And it has struck me that everyone is very mission-driven and very conscious about the impact that their products are having in people's lives and the positive uh, elements of their products. And everybody's just very nice. I, it, it, it's kind of just blown away. And But then you also have a couple brands like Athletic Brewery, Liars. Uh, I know they they some of your partners as well. And they're also very mission-driven. You also have a couple brands that spend huge amounts of their budget for working with nonprofits that are addressing those exact issues that you're describing. So at the heart of so many of these businesses, there's social impact. I think part of what I want to do uh, is take my background with Be Social Change and help support and guide these organizations, especially these early stage startups. And I'll be, you'll, you're going to be the first to know this, and I think your audience is going to be the first to know this, is that one of the other things outside of For All Drinks that I'm going to be working on in 2021 is launching the first uh, trade association for non-alcoholic beverages. So it's helping to support the overall industry as well as these organizations. But the other element that you're describing is having an opportunity to direct some resources to be able to support people in, in various populations that are dealing with alcoholism. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so fascinating to hear. And I wonder if the fact that so many of these founders and so many of the people kind of making waves and essentially creating this new category are coming to it from that place of just very much a very, a very conscious space, let's say, is because, I mean, you've probably, you've heard a lot of their stories and I think they share, they, you know, you have a podcast where you interview many of these individuals too. And some of them have probably been on my podcast, but I think yeah. a lot of people are coming to it from a place of having had a personal, some kind of a personal breakthrough, whether that's come as a result of like a rock bottom and their own substance abuse, whether it's come as a result of just like really questioning what the meaning of life is all about and like questioning what their work in the world is all about and what alcohol, the role alcohol has been playing. In that, And I, I mean, I yeah. just think that no matter how someone comes to living an alcohol free life, it will have involved some sort of deep searching self inquiry, and some and a real kind of like sober look at the world that we're living in as well, you kind of can't avoid having those realizations when you remove like the balm of alcohol and the kind of haze of alcohol. So I think what you're describing actually makes a lot of sense that the people who are driving this space are coming to it from a very mission-driven place that's actually coming from a personal, having had a personal kind of experience of some kind of inner revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think what it, what it really reminds me of is people come at it with a lot of high level, a high level of intentionality. And, and, and that really is one of the frameworks that we're really thinking that, that a lot of them are thinking about it. How do we support people to live a much more intentional and conscious and purposeful life? And it's hard to do that when alcohol is a big part of your life. Um, and I will say that most, if not uh, most of the organizations and the companies aren't necessarily anti-alcohol. And I think they have to straddle this line um, of trying to figure out how do we help people lead alcohol-free lifestyles. And some of them are provo provo uh, promoting sobriety, some are, uh, are promoting sober curiosity, and they will support that. But there's a whole set of population that just simply doesn't drink for a variety of other reasons, whether it's health reasons, religious reasons, or for whatever it is. So the interesting thing with non-alcoholic beverages is they're applicable to literally 
everyone in every context, in every situation, in every social situation. And I think they're having, from a business standpoint, having to figure out how to straddle that. Now, one of the more interesting stories is that there's a, a beer company who found a niche with professional fishermen. Because there's that's, professional that's a niche indeed. <laughs> yeah, there's professional fishermen that love drinking beer, but during competitions, they're not allowed to drink beer. So they're going after this kind of really interesting group. And I'm hearing more and more stories of people wanting and liking these tastes, but not, don't want the impact of alcohol. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for these companies to serve those people. Absolutely. It just sounded the way you're describing it just seems like this can really grow exponentially in the in the years to come. You know, you mentioned something there that I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on. You said it's really hard to live an intentional life when alcohol is a big part of your life. What did you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the challenge with consuming alcohol regularly, or even if you're you're binging on alcohol, is one alcohol is a depressant. I mean, I'll even take a step back. Let's kind of get the reality of it. One, it's a drug. Uh, and it's a carcinogen. So it's going to have a negative impact on your health. But thinking about the different individual elements where you, it's, it's having an impact on your individual health, health um, but it's probably going to have an impact on your energy, on your sleep, on your productivity. And then you're just foggy. So it's hard. To, I, I mean, I, I think for me as an entrepreneur, it was very challenging at times to really be productive and think clearly when I was hungover or when I was out really, really late and had too many glasses of wine because I felt like I needed to keep going. And you think it's, 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 it's additive, but it's actually subtractive on over time. So I, I think it's very hard uh, to be clear and present when you're under the influence of alcohol at whatever level. Yeah, you're sort of being distracted constantly for all sorts, whether you're under the influence or whether you're kind of like recovering from the after effects, you're sort of constantly operating at like 25% or more below, below yeah. par, I suppose. And it just makes me think, I mean, you sound like super focused and super productive. <laughs> and I can, and I feel like the way you're describing the way you approach work and life and creativity, I see a lot of myself in that. Mm -hmm. And it, and I definitely want to talk a little bit about how that can veer into the more workaholic kind of territory <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, I think that in this world that we're living in, I'm fine, I find for myself someone who's always been super focused, like always met a deadline, piled on the work, kind of prided myself on being able to juggle multiple projects at the same time. But in this kind of this world where we're so distracted by social media, we're so distracted by headlines, we're so distracted by, let's face it, like <laughs> catastrophic world events that seem to be coming at us kind of like one after the other. We're so distracted by causes that we want to be involved with and care about. We're so distracted by other people's opinions about our work because we have kind of direct contact with all the people who are engaging in our, with our work now, which we never used to have. I sort of feel like we need, we need to really, really guard our focus and guard our attention and guard our energy so that we can channel it into the things that are really important to us so that we can actually get stuff done. It's so It feels like that's the way the world has sped up over probably the past five to 10 years has really put an emphasis on that. And I also, and I do, and I think that's playing heavily into why more and more people are questioning their drinking or whether there's actually space for it in their lives, you know? Yeah. And I, I think what you're making me think about is a common quote, which is time is a limited resource or time is something that you can never get back. I actually think attention is even kind of higher up there, right? Is that there's only so much 
attention that you have. And there's tons of research that shows that after a certain point, even throughout the day, there's only so much attention that you kind of have. And then what happens is your brain or what I would call your psychological immune system starts to decrease. Mm. Um, And think about your psychological immune system, similar to your regular immune system, right? And if you stress it too much physically, your immune system is going to break down and you're going to get sick. Same thing happens with your psychological immune system. When you're tired, you're probably going to be snappy at your partner or friends or family. You're going to be moody. Alcohol has a direct impact on your psychological immune system, both in terms of its direct effect immediately when you're drinking and it has it had impacts your brain, but it's going to have an impact on your energy, on your sleep, and then it gets into a bad cycle. So, so I think about it in those terms where um, if in, in a world where we're totally bombarded with so much content and information and information that's geared and, and tech that's geared to hijack your attention, we really need to be very vigilant um, on how we direct our attention. The other thing that I'll say about that is in that hijacking of attention um, and it being a limited resource in the context of COVID, I think we all need to take a step back and uh, think about what is it that's important to us? What are the things that bring us joy and meaning and happiness and purpose? Who are those people? And consciously direct our attention towards that. And I think that's been one of the silver linings, at least for me and many people that I've spoken to as a result of what's been happening with COVID is it's forced people to sometimes stop and take a step back to think about what is truly important, what I really need. I'm pausing this episode to tell you about Gia, a spirit-free aperitif produced with pure plant extracts, herbs and botanicals to help you relax, unwind and socialize without the hangovers. Gia is both bitter and bright and has a little bit of a kick with a citrus base that works perfectly just neat over ice or you can spritz it with sparkling soda or tonic. The active ingredients are lemon balm, which calms and soothes the nervous system, and gentian root, which kind of wakes up and preps your palate. And these are combined with elderflower, orange peel, ginger, ricin grapes, fig, rosemary, and yuzu, all without any alcohol or added sugar. This is one I would say for people who love complex, sophisticated, kind of Italian bitter aperitif flavors, and who enjoy experimenting with different flavors and rituals around food. Each order of gear comes with a signature cocktail book, and you can get yours at drinkgear.com. That's drinkgia.com. Plus, first-time customers can get 20% off your order through the end of January 2021 with the code SOBERCURIOUS. Now back to the episode. Absolutely. I love the fact you, you mentioned psychological immune system about six times. You said it like multiple times and I'm so happy you did because I want people to really like, because that resonates so strongly. And the idea of what of the different ways that that gets worn away and the ways that we can kind of like feed and bolster our psychological immune system. Perhaps we could talk about that a little bit. And it's making me think about how even before we got on, we were talking about, you know, trying to trying to weigh the logistics of like, actually traveling to see our families at any point this year, which neither of us have done. And I shared with you that I just felt like I didn't have the mental capacity to kind of take that on. Um, and that made me think, well, my, my psychological immune system maybe is a little bit low because it's been worn thin by just the constant kind of worry, I suppose, about what's what's happening in the world, you know, whether I'm kind of like confronted with that in a real way daily or not. There's like this constant eating away. So yeah. what are some of the ways that we can boost 
our psychological immune system. Yeah, well, I, I think you're pointing out something really, really important in the context of everything that's happening with COVID. And also we can talk a little bit about what that means for people drinking to mm. escape what's happening in COVID. But it's reminding me of uh, coming from a background in psychology, one of the first theories of depression, which was learned helplessness. And that really resulted in an experiment where they had a cage with rats in it a single rat in it. And underneath the cage, there were electric shocks that the rat would, would get. So what happened is if there was a shock on one part of the cage where the rat was, they would move to the other side and then go away from the, of the shock. And that kind of happened in the, and the rat would go move away. And then there was another uh, situation where the rat, it was uncontrollable shocks. And no matter what the rat did, it would get shocked. So then it would hide in the corner and just kind of be helpless and just keep getting shocked. And what it led to was this learned helplessness theory of depression, meaning that when we are in a world or a situation, when we feel we do not have any control, that has an impact on us physically and more importantly, psychologically. We feel helpless, we feel depressed, we feel overwhelmed. And that's exactly what happened during the pandemic, right? Mm. Is that so much of the structure in our world, going to work, being able to get together with friends completely was taken away from us. We also then were stuck at home and we had to create our own structure. So in our work with Be Social Change, I do a lot of personal professional development webinars and we on Zoom, we always do this, this, uh, uh, this ask of how to say one word in the chat about how you feel. And a lot of people say overwhelmed, like helpless, stressed, et cetera, et cetera. And much of that stress is a result of you not feeling like you have control over your environment. And what that leads to is essentially a fight or flight response. It, either that we are trying to like fight and try to do try to do something to feel effective, or we retreat and we kind of get depressed. And I think that's a lot of what's happening in the context of, and why our psychological immune system goes down, how can we travel? We have no control over any of these things. And if we do, there's so much time and energy that's having to be spent on things that we can somewhat control. Mm. So it, it, it makes sense that a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed and stressed right now. Mm, absolutely. And then even just kind of like zooming out. And I do want to talk about these bigger picture things as well, because I think it's really important that we stay conscious of them. But like against the back, again, like in the background, we've got COVID, which is this kind of immediate threat. And then we've got like, fucking climate change and we've got the yeah. environmental devastation that's happening to the planet and I think we feel complete like a year ago I remember I've got a friend who's from Australia and she's actually just decided to move back there and she was like you know this time last year it was the the forest fires in Australia yeah. and that felt like it was about as bad as it could get and then COVID hit and it's like but none of that environmental stuff is going away like it's just kind of simmering there in the background waiting for us so I think again you know, what would I, going back to what I asked before, like what can we do to, to bolster our psychological self-esteem and our psychological mm. immune system when we are confronted by issues which are very present and current and which we hopefully will be evolving through quite quickly. But when there are going to be, there are bigger issues that we're facing as a collective um, that we also are going to be living with probably for our, for our entire lives, not to kind of like be super fatalistic and kind of intense, but I think it's just, the reality and I for one no longer want to kind of like bury my head in the sand slash a, a bunch of cocktails <laughs> and not actually be present to it because that's not going to help my psychological immune system 
Yeah, and, and I think we'll, we can kind of think about it in a couple of ways. The first and foremost is understand what you can control. And that first and foremost is you and your body and your health and being able to obviously get exercise, sleep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because lack of sleep is one of the biggest impacts of your psychological immune system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then if you feel stressed and you're drinking, that's going to have an impact, obviously, on your psychological immune system as well. Um, but I, I, I keep want to keep going back to recognizing the things that you can control. Mm. I feel over the past four or five years, what I've seen when it comes to politics, climate change, the social unrest that just recently happened in 2020, but that's been mm. happening for mm. hundreds and hundreds of years, a lot of people feel, what can I do? as an individual, I can't make this, I can't change the environment, I can't end poverty, I can't end all the social um, injustice unrest, but it's recognizing your sphere of influence and not putting excess expectations on yourself, because that's not going to be doing anything uh, positive for anybody. So it's taking into context what you can currently control. And then there's a there's another interesting book called The Compound Effect. And it really, the, the, the thesis of it is that human beings tend to be pretty bad about thinking long term about things uh, and into the future, but recognizing that if you did something, even one small positive act daily, every few days, weekly, over time, the compound effect of that is going to make a huge impact. So it's, it's I think it, it's going to, and now this is dry January and New Year's resolutions, and this is going to happen every single time during New Year's resolution time during January, when we're like, I'm going to get to the gym five times. And that's a very unrealistic goal if you haven't been to the gym in two months or started exercising. Yeah. But I can do that one or two times. I, I remember working with a, a coaching client and they wanted to integrate a meditation practice into their life and they just couldn't do it. So they were, she was trying to do 15, 20 minutes a day. And I was like, let's start with one minute a day and then we'll go to two and three. So it's, I, I think that's one of the key things is recognizing what you can control and then what you can control start out really small and then have small wins over, over time. I love that. Thank you. And yeah, that's actually really helpful. I can feel my own my own nervous system just kind of even settling a bit as we're <laughs> discussing that, you know. And I think yeah, one thing we can control is what we're putting into our bodies. And I think one one thing I really noticed when I started to well actually it began with me with coffee. Coffee was the first thing I I removed to kind of like manage my or see if it had an impact on my anxiety and my sleep and it massively changed everything. Um, and then I removed sugar and that had a huge impact as well. I've gone since gone back to both those substances and they no longer have the same negative impact on me, which is really interesting. But that was kind of like a precursor to me really getting into to becoming sober curious and removing the alcohol, which ultimately was like the the mother, <laughs> the, yeah. the mother of kind of like, yeah, substances that was that was obviously having a very um, negative impact on my social on my well-being. But I didn't actually even realize the extent of that until I removed it. So to speak a bit to dry January, I think that's like you, like you said, you know, taking, don't, not biting off more than you can chew and not trying to kind of like go the whole hog all at, all at once. I think one of the great things about dry January, coming back again to that word intentionality, I think approached with intention, meaning with the intention to really use this month as a period to examine your drinking habits and to really kind of like not only look at why you're how you're drinking, but why you're drinking and some of the deeper drivers, like some of what kind of shows up and is present for you when you remove the alcohol is a great kind of starting place 
for perhaps a longer journey of really kind of like getting to the root of your drinking and and potentially even removing it for good. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really see dry January as a catalyst. It, it's it's a new start. It's a new beginning. And a lot of people are doing it. So there's that social element as well. And it is just an opportunity to, one, explore your relationship with alcohol because you're ditching booze. But I think of it as a more of a catalyst. After 30 days, yes, there is going to be a huge positive impact on your uh, psychological and physical well-being. But how I think that then the thing is what happens after dry, mm. after dry January and beyond on dry January. I think what's different, especially in the United States compared to all previous dry Januaries, is that this is the first time there's non-alcoholic beverages that are just as good, if not better, than previous ones. There's There's been, over the past year, there's been a couple of breweries that have won awards over, uh, over alcoholic beers mm. that, in terms of taste. So part of what we wanted to do with For All Drinks and what we're launching in 2021 is a Dry January Festival. Um, as opposed to just simply an online campaign and people commit, we really wanted to provide people with the resources and the recommendations and connections to other participants that they needed in order to get them, help them stay dry, get healthy, but more importantly, have fun. I think a lot of people try Dry January and think it's going to be a drudgery of 31 days. And we want to show that there's opportunities to have fun. There's all these amazing beverages that you can, one, try and substitute for the drinks that you typically drink. But there's so many to explore, um, both beer, wine, and spirits, that it'll be fun to be able to to, to see uh, what are some of the non-alcoholic beverages you like. Okay, so speaking of fun, let's get to the workaholism piece. Yeah. <laughs> Because I definitely, once I started really kind of digging into like, why do I drink? Why do I, why do I look forward to that drink at the end of the day? Like, why do I use alcohol all weekend? Part of it was to stop me working because I realized that I'm so creative. I'm so inspired. I have so many ideas. I love to work. I get really energized by my work that without something to kind of like almost physically prevent me from working like a few stiff drinks so that I actually couldn't think or see my computer screen properly anymore. I would never stop working. And that's definitely something that kind of like came in really strong for me when I really fully quit, when I really fully removed alcohol sort of two, three years ago, I last summer got to a point of extreme burnout. And it's because I realized that I just hadn't had no like off switch for the work and I would just work continually. Um, and and in my case as well, taking on a lot of unpaid work, which also meant that I was constantly worried about money. So it just was this kind of really awful snowball that I had to do a big intervention on myself around. So I'd love to hear from a fellow creative entrepreneur <laughs> slash workaholic, what ways have you found to kind of switch off that are healthy? What ways have you found to have fun that's not connected to your work? Or is that still something that's a challenge for you? Because it's still, I'll admit it, still a challenge for me. Yeah. And, and I'll go back. I had a very similar narrative where, yes, I was drinking and at the beginning to have a few drinks that probably led to, to too many more that uh, in terms of doing more work, you probably are getting more energy from the extra calories because the alcoholic drinks had a lot of sugar. Um, but it got to a point just like what you pointed out, which is I needed breaks. And I remember as you were sharing what you just said, specific days where I would drink too much at night and maybe consciously, but probably subconsciously, I needed a break. My mind needed to turn off. And I feel very fortunate and privileged that my brain works in that kind of way. Like I'm never bored. I'm always creating. 
but my brain needed a break and probably my body. So then the next day when I was hungover, it was an excuse not to work or I just simply just couldn't work. And I, I had a break. And what ended up happening was it was impacting my relationship. My uh, girlfriend, uh, now fiance, called me out and really, and called me out in the sense in the most supportive way, uh, but made me see and, and really held up a mirror that this was happening. And I don't think I was making those connections. So when I decided to remove alcohol more from my life, you, you really did have to find kind of substitute. So for me, as an entrepreneur, I saw a gap in the market. I saw an opportunity to create a community, to support these brands, to and that was how I actually entered the space. But for me at the beginning, it was very, very helpful to start exploring all these non-alcoholic beverages and experiment with, I was making drinks for uh, my for Jen, I was making drinks for friends. I was talking, I have a friend who's a bartender who owns uh, a couple bars and he doesn't drink. So I was talking with him on all these different types of non-alcoholic beverages. So for me, that was really fun. I'm, since I do so many events, I am by nature a host and a connector. So being able to do that for people was super, super fun. And then I, we started thinking about hosting events in New York City. So that was one of the main things that was really, really fun for me. Um, but the other thing that I really had to do, because at night when I would probably uh, go to sleep a little tipsy or pass out, I needed to kind of restructure, reframe that time. So I started listening to books. I, I got audiobooks and I probably listened to like three to five, sometimes up to like eight books a month, um, just falling asleep. And I go to bed for like an hour, hour and a half, and I'm just like sleeping. And then in the middle of the night, if I wake up, I'll re-listen to the book. So I really had to find complimentary activities that were fulfilling those aspects that I thought alcohol was fulfilling for me. Yeah, that makes so much sense. What you said about like you were kind of forcibly giving yourself a break, like unconsciously your brain was seeking something that was like, wait, we need to shut Rubot off. That's what my friends used to call me, by the way, Rubot, because <laughs> I'm like, so like uh, 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 meeting deadlines on hangovers. But yeah, um, yeah, my brain kind of like hijacking me almost by going quick, get the martinis. <laughs> we need yeah. to stop. We need to switch this brain off. It's going to malfunction otherwise. Absolutely. But yeah, thank you for sharing. Because I think that, you know, the thing Things that we find to switch off, to relax, to have fun, they're going to be different for everyone. And I think it's about giving yourself permission to just follow your intuition and to follow what feels good and not to label things as kind of like uncool or geeky or, you know, not, not the kind of thing that someone like you was supposed to be into, you know, and just kind of allowing yourself to explore and, and discover what those things might be for you. Yep. And, and I think the value, so your, your book was one of the first books that I read and it was hugely influential because it created a framework and helped me make sense of what I was going through, but also the sober curious piece, which is a whole other conversation, which is a whole conversation among sobriety and recovery and all this is it, it, it provided an openness and a welcoming where I didn't feel at the time. And I still don't feel that there was, that I was an alcoholic. That's not kind of the, or when, someone was framing it or I was trying to frame myself and that it just didn't feel right. And I needed to come up with something different. And your book and your framework really allowed me to be able to explore that. And I, I think for me, I don't 
label myself as like sober or even kind of to a certain extent sober curious, although that's a common word I use, I typically just say I'm a non-alcoholic drinker. I still drink wine occasionally. There's a there's a special wine in New Mexico that is made um, by a local winery. It's like a chocolate and uh, New Mexico chili based wine that I'll have occasionally with family and the vineyards right near uh, near one of my uncles. But I can count the time on my hands of how much I've actually drank this year. So I, 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 and I and I share that just because you pointed out the label piece. I think that's a challenge that people have on this journey of how to label themselves or how to call themselves or just label the journey that they're on. And I think uh, the concept of sober curiosity really provided an openness and a welcoming for people on this journey. I think so too. I've kind of settled on a non-drinker for mm. myself, which, yeah. but again, it's slightly, I still, sober curious is, is good. <laughs> I may say so myself because it sounds upbeat. It sounds fun. And it doesn't sound like, it sounds like you're adding something by being curious rather than non-drinker is still like a non, it's still in the negative space. So yeah, yeah. I'm still kind of like excluding myself by calling myself a non-drinker. Sometimes it feels like, although it just works for me, it's the easiest thing I think that I can say to people. I'm really curious, Marcos, tell me if this is too personal, but was there a specific incident when your girlfriend kind of called you out? Was like, there was there something that had specifically happened or was it just over a time she'd noticed that perhaps this was veering into unhealthy territory? And I ask because I think this is something that I hear people talking about a lot is like, how do I, how do I let my partner know that their drinking is upsetting me or that I don't think it's good for them? And I think that's a very delicate and, um, difficult thing to navigate for people. Yeah. So I, if you could give us a little more insight around that, I'd love absolutely. it. Absolutely. worked. Whatever she said worked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think there were a number of incidences uh, that it, it kept happening. I think that was the situation. I think I remember a specific time where uh, she was visiting me. She was, she, I, I believe at the time she was uh, working in a, in another city and uh she went and hung out with friends and it was the middle of the day and I just needed to get work done. So I, I ended up drinking and then one thing led to another and I just realized that I had way too many Negronis that used to be my drink. And I just got drunk very, very quickly. And this was kind of in the middle of the, of the afternoon. And then when she came back, I was essentially passed out. And I just wasn't able to speak with her or talk with her in a coherent way. Um, and there were a number of incidences that, that happened like that. Um, I'm also, it's, it's reminding me, I uh, interviewed for a fireside chat, uh, Gretchen Rubin, who wrote the book called The Happiness Project. And in one of her books, she talks about the different types of, I don't remember if she calls it values or personality types, but she she labels people as uh, one as, a, as an abstainer versus a moderator. And the way she talks or gives the analogy is that if you had a piece of chocolate in your desk, would you be able to eat one piece and be satisfied and then put it away? Or would you eat the whole chocolate bar? And I'm an, an abstainer, meaning that I would eat the whole chocolate bar. So I either have to abstain from eating it or I'll eat the whole thing. When it came to alcohol, uh, I would like there'd be wine or there'd be something that I would really like. I never really drank like cheap stuff, nor super expensive. It was just something that would taste really good. But I'm the type of person that would just if if this tastes good, why not continue drinking more? And that just happened over a number of times. I'm also thinking about a time where we, I came to visit her upstate when she was working upstate in upstate New York. And um, 
when she came back from work, I had been drinking and doing work and I just wasn't present. I really wasn't able to really have a really intelligent and present conversation with her. Um, when I uh, was able to um, sober up the following day, she just had a very open and frank conversation. And Yes, there were situations with her that she's had experience with people who drank in her life. Um, and that kind of came into it as well. Um, but the, the thing is, she just felt really bad that I was hurting myself. She, it was hurting her that I was hurting myself, uh, both in terms of physically, but also just in terms of just like hurting myself because I was having a negative impact in our relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that was so hugely beneficial that I appreciated um, was that she suggested that I go see a therapist. And when I saw a therapist, I was able to unpack a lot of the things that we had uh, that we've been talking about is my workaholism tied with alcoholism some of the other motivations as to why I may be uh, drinking. And it really, really allowed me to recognize very clearly the impact and the role that it was having in my life and how to, I could remove it. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing. I think that'll just be really useful to people. You said something mm -hmm. else was that she waited until the next day yeah. when you were sober and could actually have the conversation with her. She didn't yeah. sort of try and have that conversation with you while you were in that state, which I can imagine possibly could have escalated or just ended up really messy. She yeah. waited until there was a really, she was intentional <laughs> with her, with her request. That word has come up so much, which I love, but she was able to kind of like be really intentional about the way she spoke to you about it. Absolutely. And, and I think fortunately We've built a really strong relationship very early on that really led to that conversation being very productive. When we deal with conflict, and she even teaches a workshop on, on having difficult conversations and conflict resolution, and I've taught some of those uh, types of workshops as well. And one of the things when we have difficult situations, we're very intentional about being kind with each other. It's very easy during heated conversations or when your emotions are hijacked by the situation to lash out and to be mean with each other. I, I think that the, the thing is, and this kind of even leads to a social impact piece, is that when you're under the influence of alcohol, it's very easy to not have that psychological immune system intact. In, in and you could very easily lash out or get angry or allow your emotions to overcome you. The, the kind of extreme part of that is domestic violence and so much that happens as a result of alcoholism. So I think with her, she was conscious enough and knew that in order for the conversation to be productive, us having it during the time when I was intoxicated um, wasn't going to be productive. And I needed to be fully present in order for me to really take what she was saying in and then uh, take action on, on, on what we spoke about. Amazing. I think this will be really helpful for people to hear and probably ring true for a lot of people as well. Um, and it sounds like it's only been good for your relationship because that's the, you've, you've since got, in, meaning you've since got engaged. But I think that's the other thing that people often think about is like, if I, re if I remove this, perhaps it's, this has felt like it's the glue of our relationship. What will happen if I remove it? Like, mm, are we still going to have the same connection? Are we still going to have as much to talk about? It's definitely something that my husband and I kind of questioned in the beginning. Um, but ultimately for us as well, it only led to us having a deeper connection because we're actually always present with each other, which is yeah. what it's really all about, right? Present. And, and, and I think the other thing that was hugely valuable that came out of that is it forced us 
if we wanted it to be productive and we wanted this to make our relationship better, it forced us to create new communication channels um, as well. Mm -hmm. I, and, and also dive deeper and have conversations on a lot of deep things. I, I think for me, and one of the things that I'm fortunate of having such an amazing partner is that it's allowed me to grow on so many different levels, but it's allowed me to also dive deeper and remove armor and remove um, boundaries that I've had built up from all, probably all kinds of different reasons growing up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, we use this as a vehicle to just get closer and as opposed to trying to approach it. And I need to change this person. This person is doing something bad. How can we work together and use it as a, as a vehicle for us to grow deeper with each other and, and connect on a deeper level? Mm, that's really, really cool. Maybe we can just finish up on this, but um, in the period where I was really kind of negotiating with booze, like, can you be in my life? Do I have to like abstain completely? Is this one of those situations? Having those alcohol-free options was such a great placebo effect. They would buy me so much time in those on those evenings when I had a really intense craving and it was really hard not to drink. I feel like I bought myself a massive kind of like space for negotiation with alcohol through having one of those drinks in my hand instead. And that's one of the reasons I recommend them. But I know, for example, um, for people who are in recovery, who are following abstinence-based recovery programs or who are doing 12-step work, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, not disdain, but they're kind of off the table, actually, you know, particularly the ones that are more quote unquote realistic because they are thought to be quite triggering. What have you, what kind of, what has your work in this space brought up around that? Are they, are these drinks okay for people who are like have a more severe alcohol addiction or who are kind of in 12 step programs, et cetera? For me, I have the same narrative where the non-alcoholic beverages really helped me in a number of ways, both biological and psychological. Biological in the sense of taste is being able to taste delicious drinks. Um, sodas and bitters was one of my favorite ones at the beginning. There were a couple of things that I experimented with because alcohol and the difference between non-alcoholic and alcoholic drinks is alcohol does tend to have that little... Um, burning right mm -hmm. it's got that it's got that element and i was experimenting with putting like uh cayenne pepper uh, or like other peppers and stuff to, to get that there are some uh drinks now i just recently had a gin that is absolutely exactly the same like a normal gin i was blown away and this is the best gin that i've ever had and i'm really excited about those type of products that are coming out so and then there's also the tactile and the social piece as well which is holding a holding a beverage in your hand and drinking so there was all those elements now sidestepping into those people in recovery is that again you have to think about the over what's the what's the thing that's actually triggering is it the psychological piece which is the tactile which is having that that element in your hand but a banana has more alcohol than a non-alcoholic beer right banana sprite has i think like 0 0.07 or something so so there are all these things that people are regularly consuming that have alcohol in it so there's this blend of of this psychological piece for some it would be very easy to just substitute a non-alcoholic beer for an alcoholic beer and for others it just might be too much of a trigger because it reminds people of certain contexts of situations it reminds people of the bar so it could lead to that so i i think people need to really recognize what is the reason why I was drinking, kind of all the conversation we're having, and is it going to be triggered by a psychological versus biological um, uh, situation? 
Yeah. And I guess if you're in a precarious point in your recovery or your sober curiosity, even, and you really don't want to get, you really want to stick with it and you don't want to get sucked down that path. I guess it's that, you know, if in doubt, don't (laughs) and choose something that's choose one of the other alcohol free beverages. That's not so kind of close to in look, taste and feel the other, the options that are out there now. And you, and you nailed it. You, you shared something and it triggered a memory for me, which is you shared that you'll, you can drink a, a glass of wine and it won't be triggering to you. And you've kind of gotten over that. You've gotten over that hump. Mm. And I, I think that's an important piece. And even getting back to dry January, 30 days, if you've been drinking regularly, is not going to get you over that hump. Like Mm-mm. physiologically, Mm-mm. it's not, it's going to be, and that's why you just recently, uh, uh, released your new book is it's going to take a hundred days or more in order to do that. And I, I think what's really important is I, that's the same thing for me is that when I stopped drinking, I went completely alcohol free for about three and a half months and then had uh, a glass of that delicious wine during Christmas. I, I, I stopped in August and it, it, it led to, it led to cravings. It, mm. it, I had to then take a step back and, and spend some time realizing what is the impact that it, this is having for me psychologically and biologically? Am I wanting to have another glass because it's really good from a just taste standpoint, or is it alcohol and I'm wanting to drink more and more alcohol? And I had to go through that and through that self-exploration for a while. I mean, after a year and a half or so, I feel like I can have a glass of wine or anything and it's not that big of a deal. During those early periods, I don't think I was in that place and it it took a lot longer than expected for me to get there. But it's interesting, isn't it? If you had never had that glass of wine, you maybe wouldn't have gone on that kind of deeper inquiry around like, is it, it was, the flavor I want or is it the alcohol I want? Because that's such a fine, there's such a fine line because the flavor is the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hmm, what's really going on here? What am I really craving? And why does that like, why did that drink spark some kind of like a feeling in me? You know, like, mm, yeah. it's very subtle. It was an absolute essential part of my journey. Mm. I, I, I know that there is, and this is always this really interesting conversation. If I didn't have those points of reintroducing alcohol into my life and what that meant versus just going kind of fully, fully sober, I, I don't think it would have led to as much self-discovery. For me personally, I needed to be on that journey and really kind of get a sense of where alcohol sits in my life. Mm. When are situations that I would want to consume it? When would I don't want to consume it? With an understanding that if I consumed it more, it's going to have a negative consequence in multiple levels in my life, physiologically um, and psychologically. So I know where it is and what place that I, it has on my kind of cabinet or in my mm-hmm. in my life. Mm. But um, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had those those occasional drinks. Yeah, I feel exactly the same, as you know, from reading my book. But no, I believe I've valued those again with intention, pristine intention and integrity Having a drink when you're in the midst of quitting, I think can be extremely informative. Yes. Um, Thank you. And it sounds like your first kind of big break was around 100 days. Yeah, it it, it was around that time. I I, I think that's when I started to really recognize the positive benefits of going off alcohol Mm. um, and also just reducing in terms of those cravings that I had, Mm. as well as along with being able to speak with a psychologist, Mm. unraveling that linking of work and alcohol. And, and, and that was the, after about a hundred days. Yeah. Right. Very cool. 
Marcos, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I'm really happy that we got a chance to kind of like get a bit deeper into your motivations around this work that you're doing. It's really super important. And um, yeah, I'm really happy to be doing it with you. So thanks for coming on today. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for creating this platform. Thank you for creating all the amazing content and work that you do. It is really influenced and inspired the work that that I've done. And to end it, I, I think what you just shared is what I'm really trying to do with For All Drinks is really provide an opportunity where people can lead a life with intention and meaning and purpose. And when you have non-alcoholic options, as opposed to drinking alcohol, you'll be able to do that in a much more effective way. Absolutely. So this is out, this is out first week of January, 2021. So you for this whole month have all sorts of activities, interactive groups, et cetera, online this time. Hopefully 2022 will all be in person. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But yeah, so where can people find more out about all of that? So people can go to dryjanuaryfestival.com and you'll be able to access a month-long series of events, of content, of inspiration. We have some really amazing speakers, both uh, about non-alcoholic beverages, but we're taking a really holistic approach to Dry January. We have you being, uh, as, as one of the speakers, doing a workshop for us, but we're also working with a lot of health and wellness, nutrition, personal growth, and, and professional growth uh, experts and advisors to really provide a whole month of essentially making 2021 your best year. 2020 has just been so crazy. And I think this is an opportunity to reimagine what 2021 forward looks like. And we just really want to set people up uh, really, really well at the beginning of the new year. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you as always for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review on iTunes to help more people find this series. This podcast is edited and features original music by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.